So this morning again, we have John Chrisman uh, joining us to bring the word to us. Uh, so John comes from the Boyertown area. He's a graduate of Notre Dame and Duke University of Law. After 10 years of practicing law, he felt calling by God uh, into the ministry. And following that call, he recently graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, he is here this morning with his wife, Allison, who teaches preschool, and his daughter, Elizabeth, who's entering the sixth grade at Delaware uh, County Christian School. So, John, come with us this morning. Thank you, and good morning again. We're going to be back in Genesis 39, so hopefully you still have your Bibles open, and uh, we're going to pray for our time together in God's Word. Oh, dear Lord, three things we ask and pray in our time together. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more nearly, and to follow thee more nearly. To whom shall we go in a world full of adversity? You are with us, whatever we face. By your spirit, open our ears to hear you, our eyes to see you, and our hearts to cherish you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you were to visit the cemetery at Monticello in Virginia, you would find a stone bearing this inscription. Here was buried Thomas Jefferson, author of the Declaration of Independence, of the Statute of Virginia for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. These tombstone words were chosen by Jefferson himself, quote, because by these, he wrote, as testimonials that I have lived, I wish most to be remembered. That is how epitaphs on gravestones function. They are short summaries, brief snippets, often just one phrase, one sentence by which a person's life is remembered. Sometimes they are chosen by the deceased person himself or herself. Sometimes they are chosen by others. Jefferson chose his own, and he focused on certain human achievements in his life. Joseph has a certain Epitaph recorded of him, God, scripture, and it says this from Acts chapter 9, God was with him. These are the words of the martyr Stephen. In a single sentence, we see Joseph's life summarized with an emphasis on what? Not human achievement, not on what he has done, but God's presence with him. You see, God was with Joseph from the promised land to a pit, to Potiphar's house, to a prison, to eventually Pharaoh's palace. All along the way, God was with Joseph and worked through Joseph to accomplish his redemptive purposes. As great as Joseph was and as great as his earthly accomplishments were, what is most to be remembered about Joseph, Scripture says, is that God was with him. Is this what we most remember about our lives? If we are honest, we probably don't always feel like God is with us. If we are honest, we may have even doubted or questioned whether God was with us in a certain season of our lives. Perhaps you are in one of those seasons right now. For some of you, perhaps you have even wondered that question for your entire life. But even if we say we have no such doubts in our hearts and our minds, do our lives actually reveal God's presence with us? 
Would it be said by others of you as it was said of Joseph, God was with him or God was with her? As we work through this passage in God's word, I want us to see this central idea. God is with us no matter what we are facing. If we are in Christ, God is with us all the time. He is with us whether we face prosperity or adversity. For no matter what evil is meant against us, no matter what evil is done to us, dangled before us, or said about us, no matter what evil God means for our good and to bring about His redemptive plan in our lives and in the world. We'll unpack this idea by looking at Joseph's life from a pit to Potiphar's house to a prison. And no matter where we see Joseph, we see God was with him. Our first point is this. God is with us when we face wrongdoing by others. From chapter 37 onward to the end of the book of Genesis, the focus is on Joseph, one of Jacob's sons. Some quick background. He is, in fact, Jacob's favored son. How do we know this? Well, the Bible tells us so. In Genesis 37, now Israel, that's Jacob, son of his old Joseph, more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. Yet the Bible tells us that Joseph's brothers hated him and spoke ill of him in the very next verse. Joseph's dreams only make them hate him more. Their hatred is so intense that they strip Joseph of his special tunic and they throw him in a pit to die. But rather than leaving him to die in a pit, they decide to sell their brother to some traders who take him to Egypt. An empire of darkness full of pagan idolatry and false gods. Pause for a minute here. Life is not great for Joseph. But he is protected from worse, and he is preserved. These traders then sell Joseph to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh. And this is where our chapter, chapter 39, picks up, which we just read for us. Verses two, we immediately read in Genesis 39, verses 2 and 3. The Lord was with Joseph. This is not what we would expect to read at this point in the story. His young life is marked by struggle. You see, Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit, and now he's been sold into slavery. He's away from the promised land, and he's away from his father's love. Perhaps some of you even heard this morning, some of you may be heading off to college, away from what you knew. Well, nothing about his life from the outside looks like God was with him where he was. And if he was, this God either appears impotent in power or unconcerned with justice. Does God not care about the evil that was done by Joseph's brothers? Scripture tells us and is clear, the wrongdoing of Joseph's brothers is neither excused nor justified. The Bible is not silent. What they did to Joseph was wrong. And how can we say that for sure? 
Well, I get a lot of this from Genesis 50 at the end of the book, but first, what they did is described as evil. Both Joseph and his brothers call what they did evil. Second, in that chapter, the brothers feel guilty and remorseful about what they did, and they express such guilt. Third, the brothers confess their sin and seek forgiveness from Joseph. And fourth, Joseph then forgives his brothers. You see, all of this, the declaration of evil, the guilt and the remorse, the confession and the forgiveness and the repentance, they communicate the wrongness of the brothers that such was against Joseph. Scripture also teaches that such wrongs, these acts of that language to describe nine, that, that great wickedness and sin against God used to describe the acts of Potiphar's wife, but it applies to every sin in our lives. The great wickedness and the sin against God must be punished and will be punished, for the wages of sin is death. God cares about the evil and the injustice done to Joseph as well as the evil and the injustice done to you. So God cares, but does God lack power to do anything about the injustice? Surely not. The Bible is clear that God is in control, and He is superintending His will, His plan, and His purposes in Joseph's life and beyond Joseph. The Bible tells us that the Lord was with Joseph in verses 2 and 3, and that as a result, he became a successful man in Potiphar's house. Now, Joseph is a long, long way from being prime minister in Pharaoh's palace, but the Lord, in verse 3, it says, caused all that he did to prosper. He caused it. Joseph found favor in the sight of his master because God caused it. God took this slave and made him an overseer of an Egyptian official's entire household. Not only did he preserve and protect Joseph's life, but Joseph obtained a level of recognition, a level of responsibility, a level of success in that house. He rose to prominence and prosperity because of the Lord's presence and power. It was all the Lord's doing, not Joseph's. It was not about human achievement, but God's divine plan and mercy. God caused Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house, and he is the cause of any success, any with the same power you have experienced in your life. With the same power God showed in causing Joseph's rise, he could have immediately squashed the evil of Joseph's brothers. Yet he did not. Why? Well, Scripture tells us this as well. Joseph says in Genesis 45, God sent him ahead. You see, he was sent ahead of his brothers to preserve and secure the nation of Israel from a severe famine, to preserve the Messianic line, and to keep them alive by a great deliverance. For what Joseph's brothers intended for evil, God meant it for good. This does not mean that God is the author of sin, nor does he approve of it. God is holy, rather himself perfect. He is not guilty of sin either himself or as an accomplice to others' wrongdoings. But nothing, not even sin, 
can stand in the way of God's redemptive plan and purpose. In Joseph's life, God had a plan for him and beyond Joseph. And it was a good plan. In Joseph's rise in Potiphar's house, we see a partial fulfillment of God's covenant and promise with Abraham in Genesis 12. A very famous passage in which we read this, You shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Both the blessings and the curses of this passage are played out throughout redemptive history in Scripture. We could walk all through the Old Testament and we could follow that promise like a bouncing ball until they center and culminate in the person and work of will be blessed, Christ, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Joseph in Potiphar's house is but one small example of that promise. Joseph is blessed even as a slave, and through Joseph, Potiphar, and his entire house, we are told in verses 5 and 6, are also blessed. You see, even if we are placed into situations as a result of others' wrongdoing, the injustice that God recognizes and cares about and could squash in a moment, even if we are placed there, God's plan and His purpose may include the blessing of those with whom you are placed around. Tisquantum was kidnapped from his home and then sold as a slave in a distant country. Sources are mixed, but he eventually escaped and found refuge with monks who, among other things, taught him English and the Christian faith. From there, he eventually made his way to another country where he was finally able to board a ship bound for his home. He returned home, sadly, only to learn that his entire village was gone. It was wiped out. They had all died from a pandemic. So he went to live with the Wampanoag about 10 years after he had been first captured. And soon after arriving in this new village, He became an instrumental peacemaker, interpreter, and guide. You see, knowing English, he brokered relations between the Wampanoag people and a newly arriving people group on board a ship called the Mayflower. And he also taught this group about planting corn, fishing, and obtaining other food sources and commodities. We know this newly arriving group as the Pilgrims. And we better know Tisquantum as Squanto. You see, Squanto's life was full of adversity and the wrongdoing of others, slavery, and much more. But what men intended for evil, God meant it for good in Squanto's life and beyond. He was described by the pilgrim governor as, quote, a special instrument sent by God for our good. Does that sound familiar? Even secular sources conclude without Squanto, quote, the Plymouth Colony pilgrims may have never survived. What men intend for evil, God means to accomplish good in your life and beyond for his glory. God was with Joseph when he faced staggering and significant wrongdoing by others. 
God was also with Joseph as he rose to prominence and prosperity within Potiphar's house. He never left him. And this truth is key to the series of episodes that were the focus of last week's sermon with Potiphar's wife, which takes us to our second point. Our second point is this. God is with us when we face temptation. We see this in verses 6 through 18. Now, we won't rehash these encounters between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Last week, we saw in verses 6 to 12, Joseph's holy resistance to and flight from sin and temptation. This week, what I want us to see from these episodes is that God, he's not the author of sin, nor is he the author of temptation. He never tempts us. God is not to be blamed for the internal and the external temptation that we face in the circumstances in which we find ourselves. James writes in his letter in chapter 1, quote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Friends, do not be deceived. God may test us as he did Joseph, but he is never the source or the author of the temptation. You may have wondered in your life or be asking now, what is the difference between testing and tempting? You may have heard others try to explain that distinction. Well, maybe try this illustration on for size. I want you to imagine a plate of freshly baked, warm and gooey chocolate chip cookies. Can you smell them? God is like a baker of these chocolate chip cookies. He made them with the right ingredients according to his recipe. He has formed and shaped them. He has pressed them and he has cooked them. He has made them to be enjoyed at a certain time. Dessert. Like Mama always said, you can enjoy them, but you must first eat your dinner. The cookies are made, and the pleasing aroma may even fill the air, but you must wait for them. The cookies are yours, but you need to wait. This is testing. Well, what is tempting? Tempting is putting the cookie in your face before dinner. Tempting is entertaining complaints about when the cookies may be eaten. Tempting is daring you to eat without mom noticing one is missing. Tempting is urging you to eat and then blaming your brother for it. Or wiping the gooey residue from your lip on his napkin at the spot on the table. That is tempting. God tests, but he does not tempt. While God is not the author of temptation, he does not leave us on our own. He is faithful and always provides a way of escape from the temptation we face. He fights for us and he fights with us. And when we resist and flee from temptation and sin, we should not be surprised when those who seek to steal, kill, and destroy kick against the goads. The reaction of Potiphar's wife in verses 13 to 18 shows the violent and vile nature of sinners without grace against God and his word. Perhaps you have experienced this in your own life. Their sin boils up, over, and out. 
Potiphar's wife is spitting fireballs from the pit of hell. She maligns and slanders Joseph. She turns into the aggressor and calls him the sexual deviant. She lies, but yet she cannot even keep her lies consistent in the stories she tells to the other servants and to her husband. She hates the Hebrew and the slave, emphasizing his ethnic background and his occupational position. She hates him who would not give her what she wanted and desired, and now she wants from him her pound of flesh. As we saw last week, Joseph did what was right in the face of temptation. And yet, here we see that things go horribly wrong for him. He went from being a slave to an imprisoned slave. Was God really with him? From the outside, it does not appear that way. And yet, that is precisely what Scripture teaches In this we learn that holy resistance to and flight from sin and temptation does not guarantee vindication. It does not guarantee in the short term a just outcome. One can do what is right and things seem to turn out wrong. Righteous and holy living in this world does not always lead to prosperous circumstances. Faithfulness to God does not eliminate suffering and trial in your life at the hands of others. Joseph's life testifies that obedience to the Lord and his word does not ensure material gain, external success, or earthly advancement. Your faithful choice, whatever you are facing now, your faithful choice might move you from a pit to a prison. And this takes us to our third and final point, which is this. God is with us when we face false accusations. Joseph no longer enjoyed most favored servant status with Potiphar. Deceived and burning with anger, the captain of Pharaoh's guard had Joseph put in prison. Pause again. Life is not great for Joseph. But yet God preserved him from worse, death, and protected him. Scripture is clear that Joseph's confinement was nothing easy. This was no posh jail cell like Al Capone enjoyed as he frequented many jail cells as a beloved gangster in the 20th century. That was not Joseph's confinement. Psalm 105 says this, They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Joseph was not only imprisoned with something that was physically hard for him. It was the result of false allegations and false accusations. You know, I recently read a report stating that in this country alone, it is estimated that more than 3,000 exonerated persons have spent nearly 30,000 total years of life wrongfully incarcerated. Joseph was paying time for a crime he did not commit. On July 27, 1996, during the Summer Olympics in Atlanta, A bomb exploded in the crowded Olympic Park. 
One woman died and over a hundred others were injured. Perhaps you remember this if you were alive at the time. Days after the event, major media outlets began to report that a temporary security guard named Richard Jewell was being investigated as a suspect in the case. For months, he was in the public's eye, constantly with his face in the news attached to this bombing. Even though he was never arrested, never charged with a crime, and even eventually officially publicly cleared of any involvement in any wrongdoing, and then even publicly commended by the Atlanta mayor as a hero for saving lives in the moments leading up to and after the bombing, some continued in those days and even to this day to view him with suspicion. It's the power of accusation and allegation. He didn't do it, and yet false allegations are hard to shake, and they're hard to take. No one likes to be falsely accused, let alone wrongfully convicted and imprisoned on the basis of false charges. And yet there Joseph was, imprisoned on false charges. God is not the author of sin. God is not the author of temptation. God is not the author of accusation. He does not make false charges or bring vendetta-laced indictments. Satan, the father of lies, is the accuser. And Potiphar's wife is quick to play that role. But what Potiphar's wife intended for evil, God meant it for good. His plan for Joseph may have appeared derailed, even thwarted, but not so. There was no setback in God's plan for the deliverance of his people. God was working in Joseph's waiting. For even in prison, Joseph met a cupbearer who would eventually speak of him to Pharaoh. You see, despite the false accusation and the unjust imprisonment based upon that accusation, what is it that Scripture immediately tells us about Joseph's time in the slammer? Basically the same thing as Scripture told us at the beginning of this chapter in verses 2 and 3. Look at verses 21 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph. God was personally with Joseph, no matter what he faced. The emphasis of this comforting and assuring fact of God's presence with Joseph is shown in our text in chapter 39 by how often the Lord's divine covenantal name appears in this chapter. What I mean by that is all those instances where you see LORD in all caps, that's the divine covenantal name Yahweh personally revealed to his people. And it appears eight times in this chapter alone. Verse 2, twice in verse 3, twice in verse 5, verse 21, and twice again in verse 23. This chorus refrain rings in our ears. God, the Lord, was with Joseph. He was with him. He is with you. We need to be told that. We need to hear that constant drumbeat. Scripture does exactly that. Why? Because we forget it. Because we overlook it. Because we so often cry the refrain of the Psalms asking, How long, O Lord, O Lord, how long? 
In other words, God, where are you in this? Where are you in that? Have you ever asked that question or one like it? Joseph may have during his time of 10 years of slavery. Squanto may have. David certainly has. Look at Psalm 13. I'll read it for you now. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Can you hear Joseph in these words? Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Even if you feel as if you've been moved from a bad to a worse, from a pit to a prison, God has not abandoned you. As he did with Joseph, God does with you. He is with you no matter what you face. And he extends his grace and his kindness and his mercy and his steadfast love to you. So like David in Psalm 13, like Joseph, trust in his steadfast love. He deals bountifully with you by assuring you of his presence and his promises in Jesus Christ. As in Potiphar's house, so again in prison. The sin of others did not stop this abiding truth. God was with Joseph. And because God was with him, Joseph received favor among men and was given responsibility within the boundaries of his involuntary dwelling places. And because God was with him, he prospered there and succeeded in what he did. In God's providence, he prospers his people even amid great hardship and difficulty to achieve his redemptive purposes in their lives, in our lives, and in the world. The prosperity experienced by Joseph in Potiphar's house and again in prison ring of the blessedness of the righteous man in Psalm 1 who delights in the law of the Lord. And the psalm says, in all that he does, he prospers. By God's grace, Joseph experienced this spiritual prosperity. That's the incalculable joy, delight, and blessing of pleasing God and glorifying Him as a salt and light servant wherever He has placed you. In the face of adversity that included wrongdoing by others, temptation, and false accusation, Joseph experienced spiritual prosperity. He did so because God was with him. Like Joseph, Jesus faced wrongful accusation, arrest, and seizure. In his life, Jesus was accused of being in league with Satan in Mark 3, being a blasphemer in Matthew 26, and being a sinner in Matthew 11. Jesus suffered false accusation, betrayal, arrest, confinement, trial, and eventually crucifixion. 
in the face of baseless allegations and sinful rebellion by men who intended evil, Jesus Christ stayed on his heavenly mission to accomplish the good of our redemption, the saving of many lives. You see, he knew his father was with him. Joseph's life points forward to the righteous, suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the Son of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who gloriously submitted to the glorious will and plan of his Father to save us sinners. Like Joseph, our Lord Jesus Christ was sold for a bag of coins and walked a path of suffering unto glory. Jesus was humiliated before being exalted. In the language of Philippians 2, he took the form of a servant before rising from the dead and ascending to heaven, seated at the right hand of his Father. Through it all, the wrongdoing of others, the temptation of Satan, and false accusation, God was with Christ, and God in Christ is with us by faith. When we face wrongdoing by others, temptation, and false accusation. As we close our time together, let us remember this. God is with us no matter what we are facing. Joseph's life with all of its rising and falling, prosperity and adversity, freedom and enslavement is remembered in Scripture this way. God was with him. Friends, this encapsulates Joseph's life, but it is a vital promise and assurance throughout Scripture to and for the people of God in Christ. This is a truth most to be remembered. And if we listen for this drumbeat, we will not only hear and see it in Joseph's life, we will hear and see it in all of Scripture and in our own lives. You see, in the Old Testament, God is with Adam and Eve walking in the garden. He's with his people in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the Exodus. He's with his people in the wilderness in the tabernacle and in the promised land in the temple. He's with his people in his word, in his prophecies from Isaiah, fear not for I am with you. He's with his people in the Psalms, Psalm 46, the Lord of hosts is with us. When you pass through the waters, Isaiah says, I will be with you. And this sound of the promise and the assurance of God being with his people grows even louder in the New Testament. For Jesus Christ is born, and Matthew remembers Isaiah's prophecy and writes in his gospel in Matthew 1, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, in the incarnation, means God with us. In the incarnation, God in Christ, the Word, the Son of God, the Messiah, came and made his dwelling among and with men and women, children. Before his crucifixion, Jesus assures his disciples that he is with them when two or three gather in his name. He promises his disciples that he will send a helper to be with you forever in John 14. 
And then after his resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus promises and assures his disciples in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. After his ascension, Christ pours out his promised spirit upon his disciples. And through our union with Christ by faith, the spirit of Christ regenerates us indwells us, renews our minds, transforms our lives, and conforms us into the image of Christ. How? Because God is with us. Church, this promise of God's presence on full display in Joseph's life is in your namesake, Emmanuel, Lydie's church. God is with us, Lydie's church. God is with you in whatever you are facing, be it adversity or hardship, trials of many kinds, the losses of loved ones, suffering, temptation, conflict, adversity, waiting, waiting, waiting. May this church wish most to be remembered as a people of whom it is said God was with them. For God is with you, Emmanuel, Lydie's church. No matter where you are, no matter what you face, God is with you in the pit, in the prison, in Potiphar's house, or in Pharaoh's palace. For God has always been with his people. And he will always be with his people. For what is true and assured in this life by faith in Christ will be by glorious sight upon his return when we hear these words together from Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious Lord, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you that you are with us here even now. We gather in your name. We proclaim your name. We proclaim the name of Christ high. In Christ alone we are saved. In Christ alone we are sanctified. He is our cornerstone. And he is with us by his spirit. Oh Lord, we thank you for this story of Joseph's life. For the testimony of Joseph that you are with him. You told us over and over again in this chapter that you are with Joseph. We need to hear those words in our own life. You are with us. You are with us. You are with Emmanuel Lydie's church. To God be the glory. In Christ's name we praise and pray. For he is risen. He is reigning. And he is returning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.